Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. I'm your pal, Goose. And if you've ever wanted to predict the property market, well, this is the episode for you. Now, that might sound a little bit funny because a lot of people say, well, you can't predict the market. But on today's episode, I actually have an amazing conversation with a guy who has Australia's only patented housing market prediction solution. His name is John Linderman. He's been around for donkey's years, not just investing, but also as a professional market analyst. He's quite famous for having a very high success and strike rate of predicting the market very accurately. And everything he's talked about is really based in really good logic and sound methodology. The interesting approach that he has is he's largely around trading markets, you know, so treating it like share markets where you may trade in and trade out at certain different points in time, which may not be for everyone, but regardless, I guarantee you're going to get a lot out of this episode. We talked about, you know, what is the housing market prediction solution and how does it work? We talked about sort of what the top five indicators he looks for are and how you can go and find that information too. We Some really interesting stuff that we covered was the fact that interstate migration is much more important than international migration. Um, Infrastructure, we talked about that and how not all infrastructure is created equal. The benefits or the impact of the cost of finance. And also, not only that, we talked about where John expects to see the market go over the next 12 months. Now, I don't necessarily agree with his predictions, but I do agree with his methodology and I think that what he does is very, very good. Now, we also talked about his investment strategy and thankfully he, uh, he, he validated the whole trinity and everything like that. So I'm very pumped about that. So I know that you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I, I had a thoroughly, it, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation really, really deeply. It was so um, enlightening in many ways to just hear another perspective and you get the opportunity to be that fly on the wall in that conversation and to enjoy that because this kind of conversation is not the kind of thing that most people get access to. Not, not most people won't get the opportunity to listen to it. In fact, a lot of people would pay a lot of money to be able to have those kind of conversations. So if you're an aspiring investor, a current investor or any, you're getting even a vague interest in, in real estate and how the markets work, you're absolutely going to tear this one apart and you're going to love it. Now, when you do that, all I ask from you is that you go and subscribe on Apple. I'd love that. When you subscribe on Apple, when you listen to our podcast and subscribe on Apple, what that does is that gives us a little bit of a better ranking. And when we get a bit of a better ranking, people start listening to us a bit more and then we get to spread this with more other people. Now, another way you can do this is to share this with a friend or a family member too. So I would really appreciate if you did that. Um, That would be massively, massively awesome. And look, I just want to say thanks. You know, like the fact that we're up to, well, we're getting we're getting through the episodes now. We've been doing this for for some time, and the fact that you are listening and going on this journey with us really means a lot. And I just want to say that I value you, the listener, uh, and I hope that you're currently enjoying everything that we're doing to try and continue to expand your property potential. And not only that, your ability to achieve greater levels of freedom, choice, abundance, fulfillment, happiness, joy, and all of that wonderful stuff. So. Without any further ado, let's get stuck into it because I really want you to have have the time to go and digest all of this information. It's great, great stuff in there, really cool examples that we talked about as well. So without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. I am joined today by a very esteemed guest and a guy that I've actually been uh, very cognizant of for some time. He's a very uh, prominent figure in the property industry. His name is John Lindemann. John, welcome to the Investor Lab. Hi, Goose, and hello, everyone. It's great to be here. 
Mate, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And now I know who you are. I've been downloading your reports and all of this kind of stuff. And I know like your name to me, it's almost like a backroom name that only people who are like deeply in the industry talk about John Lindemann and the Lindemann reports and all this kind of stuff. So really excited to kind of bring this uh, to our audience as well and shine a bit of a light on what you do because not only are you a, like a very prominent author, a very prominent contributor to a lot of media outlets, you're also the, 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 the creator of Australia's only patented housing market prediction solution. So definitely want to talk a little bit about that today. But why don't you give everyone a little bit of an insight into kind of your story and your journey and how you ended up here today? I'd love to. Thanks, Goose. Uh, my journey started a long, long time ago. I was 20 years old, uh, moved from Sydney to Melbourne to chase a girl, as, as we do, and uh, I was able to buy a my first house in Hawthorne. It doubled in price in, in four years. And I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I've, I've been wasting my time. Property investment is the way to go. And I bought a, sold that one, bought another one. And over the next four years, it went backwards in price. Uh, and we lost a lot of money. Really? Oh, yeah. It was uh, a time when property markets, you know, they go up and down and um, they do sometimes go backwards. So I thought, I've got to find out what this is all about. You know, luckily, the first house I bought was the one that went up in price. Otherwise, I'd probably be a retired school teacher now. You know? But uh, it, it worked the other way around. So I knew it could be done. I just had to find out what this holy grail was. And so it, it became a quest. And all through my professional life, that's been the guiding light to figure out how the market works. Mate, I find that really fascinating. And I'm going to tell you why. So my, I'm... I have nowhere near the the breadth and depth of experience that that you have. However, my starting point was kind kind of the same. So, not that really not that long ago, like only a few years ago, Gabby, my partner, and I decided, okay, right, property. We're going to buy a property, right? Because this is what you do. You see all the you hear all the success stories and young couple. We're doing all that kind of stuff, and we bought the wrong property in the wrong place at the wrong time right uh, into 2018, right before in Melbourne, right before the market started to go down again. And I had the same epiphany, except I hadn't had the win first, right? So I was like, okay, this sucks. This is not, this did not go what this, how does it? And then that started me on a quest. I really like the fact that you said the word quest because I always say that. Like for me, it was like, that was the turning point. That was the line in the sand where I went, hang on, no. How does this work? How does this work? I'm going to go and find out. And that's been the whole journey that's led me here. So mm. I, mean, I, I'm, I find it hilarious that this is like the same, essentially a very similar story straight across decades. Um, okay. So well, what happened then? You started on your quest and then yeah, about that. Um, what happened, Goose, was that I, I started reading every book I could find on property investing, uh, went to webinars, boot camps, uh, you know, workshops, and every known expert out there, I, I went to their, their shows and, and heard and watched what they, uh, they had to tell me. But although they taught me a lot about the property market, none of them actually showed me how it worked. And so then I'd finished my professional studies in marketing and statistics mm -hmm. and I went to work for the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and I learned about this thing called trend analysis. And I thought, this is how the... Now, the clever people work out whether the price of gold or oil or whatever is going to go up or down. They, they use trends to do this. 
Mm. And I thought, well, surely you should be able to do that with property as well. Yeah. So I then decided to um, leave the ABS and I joined Residex. I was the head of research at Residex. And uh, I studied then how you could apply this idea to the property market at suburb level. Um, when I figured out how to do that, I then uh, left Residex and set up my own company to put this into practice. Well, yeah, naturally, if you've just discovered how to, how to do that, <laughs> you wouldn't <laughs> stay working with somebody else. And it's really interesting perspective and a lot of people, it's not a perspective that I think a lot of people have. A lot of people see re, uh, real estate because it's something we live in and we all grow up in it. So people don't just conceptualize it as an asset class just in the same way that oil, gold, shares, it is an asset class. And therefore, you can apply similar thinking if you want to look at analysis and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, well, the, the only real difference, I think, with property is that most people aren't actually in it for the money. That, you know, 70% of us buy a property to, to live in as a home. Mm. So if you do apply those, um, those systems and methods to the market, you should be able to do a lot better than what the average market provides. Hundred percent. And have you? How how have you seen that play out? Like since you since you started your own company, you discovered this. We're gonna. I want to talk about this obviously a fair bit. You discovered how to like analyze the trends and start predicting the market. How how much? If you can start, if you can actually see that that trend, and if you can actually get ahead of the average investor, what does that translate to in in any kind of meaningful you know percentages or anything like that what how much better can you do if you can pay attention to it if if you buy in the right area at the right time you can do fantastically well uh, some of the gems that we've uncovered uh, one was hay in in southern new south wales and uh, we we identified the fact that they were going to build a cotton gin in hay and they'd need 160 people to come in uh, who would rent properties in hay there were no rental vacancies in hay and very few properties available for sale. So what happened there was we, we recommended we run a, a mentoring program and we told our, our mentorees, this is where you want to buy. Now, property prices doubled in seven months. That's the best success we've ever had. Uh, they were still positive cash flow at the end of that uh, fantastic result. But probably, you know, more commonly you'd find property prices uh, that going up maybe 50% in a year or two, that, that sort of growth is possible to identify ahead of time. Okay. So, again, I'm going to loop back to the housing market prediction system. But just on that point, though, isn't that just, uh, in essence, uh, volatility of a small market? Like, hey, it's not a very big town. <laughs> so how do you, how do you, how do you balance um, that, that growth, forecasting that growth? Because, for example, you can see a small town and they're going to build and in the perspective, let's say there's a town of a thousand people and there's going to be something happen there, I don't know, a new pipeline or a new factory or a new thing that needs uh, another thousand people. You can be like, oh my God, this, we're doubling the demand and you can kind of foresee, I'm using broad, you know, broad perspectives there, you can see that, that would go up. But is that not just volatile? Like how do you, you know, what happens when it doesn't, when it goes down again? We kind of see all this kind of stuff with small mining towns all the time. Well, the, the key is those two indicators, the number of rental vacancies and the number of properties listed for sale, which is free information. You can go to realestate.com.au and, and get that. And 
What that tells you, if you track, say, hey, you would see there were no riddle vacancies, but when the the cotton gin was finished, it started to go up again because people were leaving. So that was the time to get out. So it's a short-term, what I call timing the market. It's it's not that easy, otherwise everybody would do it. But if you do it correctly, uh, the returns can be quite phenomenal. Got it. Okay, so your approach is much more like trading as in trade in and trade out of markets as opposed yep. to as opposed to um, index investing, for example, where you just buy in and do nothing? It, in that case, it is. Um, I look at different types of investors have different needs and when you're starting up, you know, you've got very little equity and so maybe buying a $100,000 house in a place like Hay is, is within your grasp. What you want to do is increase your equity as, as quickly as possible. Mm. But other investors um, will be going for longer-term buy-and-hold investments or active investments, you know, doing renovation or development. So what we've been able to do is to predict which areas suit different types of investors. Okay. So do you want, let's, do you want to talk to me a little bit and talk to the listeners a little bit about what because the, the, the system that you've got, you've developed, this whole, it's, the basis of the, all this is called the HOMPS, HOMPS, Housing Market Prediction Solution. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, that, that's uh, what we did after I left Residex. I decided to set up my own database and it's a massive storehouse which contains all of the property data for every single suburb in Australia. There's over 15,000 suburbs. Mm. It does it for houses and units, and it looks at um, the past, you know, how have areas performed, how are they performing right now, and then, of course, we, we predict future by looking at uh, which way they're likely to perform. This database is the only one of its kind. We, we took out a patent for that. Um, so we've got an innovation patent and nobody else, uh, although some people copy us, nobody else is uh, actually able to publicly say that that's what they do. What defines, without giving away your secret source, what defines the unit, like a database collection of information? So, for example, if I was to get a whole bunch of information from CoreLogic, for example, and I'd have a big pile of information, how is, and, and I, you know, there are other people out there who go and aggregate data, what distinctly makes your d- database or system? What, is it, what distinctly makes it different that other people aren't able to, to do? Well, the, the main difference is the fact that it, it's been built on the experience that I've built up in uh, you know, around nearly 40 years of investing mm-hmm. and studying the housing market professionally for over 15 years. So what I've done in there is I've built in algorithms that we look at to predict rent growth and price growth over you know short or medium or long periods of time then we go back and see well how have these actually performed in the past so is this algorithm accurate and if it has been in the past will it be so in the future so we've built up methodologies based on how the market's performed in the past and worked out well that's how it's likely to perform in the future given certain situations uh what that we found is that since we started doing this, mm. it's been over 90% accurate in terms of predicting the intensity as well as the direction of prices and rents. That is a pretty good strike rate, over 90%. Mm. Even if it was under 90%, I'd still say that's, that's pretty good. I think if it was over 50%, I'd think it was pretty good. <laughs> okay, that's, that's great. Okay, so 
One of the questions I've got then, you know, maybe this is a bit of a leading question as well. There are so many moving parts with property because it's not just the mechanics. It's not just as like, it's not as simple as like, okay, there are 100 houses and uh, 100 people living in this town and new jobs are created and therefore that we need 200 more houses because there's 200 more people coming and therefore the math's simple equation like this because you've got do people want to live there? Will they travel in? Will they rent? Will they buy? What is the emotional, psychographic overlay? All of this kind of stuff. There's all these moving parts. How do you navigate that rather than just looking at kind of where the jobs are going, for example? How does that work? Well, you've got to look at the market in, in two different ways. And, and the first is that and I, the housing market is about people. That's the first thing I, I would always say to, to anyone. Agreed. Uh, it's, it's about people, not about bricks and, and tiles and stuff like that. Now, when you look at the macro view, the top-down view, you're looking at what are the main demand dynamics and quite simply it's where people are moving to uh, as opposed to where they're moving from. So the, again at macro level, uh, the biggest source of population growth is overseas arrivals. That's of course, uh, you know, collapsed at the moment but it will start up again. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got migration within Australia, so people moving around. and. Interestingly there, the, the number of people that moved last year from one state to another is double the number of actual, you know, the population growth. So it's a very significant thing to be able to track where people are moving within Australia. And then the second dynamic is, well, when they move, will they buy or will they rent? Uh, do they want to buy a house if they're construction workers, they mightn't want to? Uh, can they afford to? Or do they need finance if they're retirees downgrading? They mightn't even need finance. So that's population growth and movement. And then the need and availability uh, cost of finance is the second one. They're the macro dynamics. And then from the bottom up, we then put in, well, what about the supply and demand at individual suburb levels? So if a number of people, let's say a lot of people want to move into a suburb and they want to buy properties, well, what is the current supply compared to the demand in that suburb? So if there's a lot of properties on the market and not that much demand, then prices won't go up, even though the demand has increased. So we apply the, you know, the micro indicators, supply demand, which is put, put simply uh, listings, rental vacancies, and uh, of course, sales. And we look at each suburb then to work out from the bottom up what's likely to happen. A couple of questions. You said that interstate migration was double uh, total population growth. That's right. So does that mean that interstate migration or, um, you know, domestic migration is much more important than population growth holistically? It, it is, yeah. Um, it's very much more important and it's, it's what I call the elephant in the room because nobody sees it. Mm. And the reason for that is that we always look at the net migration figures. To, to give you an example, uh, it, ACT or Canberra last year, net interstate migration zero. However, 22,000 people moved in and another 22,000 people moved out. That's about 10% of the population of Canberra. So what you've got is a lot of people coming in and a lot of people coming out. But when you look at the net figure, it's zero. Now, this wouldn't really matter if the people coming in were the same as the people going out, but they're not. Uh, the people moving into Canberra are young professionals seeking work in, in the government. Mm. And so what they do is they look for units to rent. So the rent demand is, is about to escalate in Canberra. 
but the people leaving are older people who are about, they've done their career in Canberra and they want to retire to Batemans Bay or the Gold Coast. They're selling a, a house, that, you know, a family home they've owned. So it's completely different demographics, housing needs. So what you're finding is that the demand for these bigger houses to buy is falling at the same time as the rent demand for units is rising. Yet when you look at the net migration, you see the figure zero. So that's why it's so important. Okay. Next question I had about that previous point, supply and demand. You're looking at current supply versus current demand. What about future supply risk? What about, you know, if there's a hundred, if there's a thousand people moving there and there's a hundred houses, you go, oh my God, demand is way exceeding supply. We're going to get rich. But then someone's like, I don't know, Stockland are planning, a, I don't know, a, a 10,000 house development right next do you factor the future supply risk in or do you only look at the snapshot of like what's happening right now? If you're going to trend forward, you, you have to look at the future uh, supply trend as well. So what we, mm. we look at is things like um, unmet demand and also about potential listings. Uh, so when we look at an area, uh, this is more important when you're looking at outer suburban areas where there's a mm. lot of new development. Uh, when you look at the supply-demand sort of ratios, that's for existing areas, you know, well-established areas. And when you look at outer suburban areas, you've got to factor in the the potential for, you know, more supply coming on the market. And that's what we do. Okay, cool. That makes sense. That's all good. Okay. Um, you said that the most important thing was people. I agree. And then within that, you said that the most important thing was interstate migration. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to clarify. Yep. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Okay. And then the second most important thing in that hierarchy, so people first and then cost of finance. Cost of finance has never been cheaper, really, has it? It hasn't, but the, the problem with finance is you've got to get a loan. And if you go to the banks at the moment, they're being rather more selective in, in who they lend to and, and where they lend. Uh, just today I, I read about Resimac, which is a non-bank lender, tightening their, their, their requirements that so the Bank of Queensland did in ways that have never been done before. What they're looking at is the potential for unemployment to rise and for, uh, you know, recessions to, to come hit certain areas. So they're tightening their lending rules. So even though interest rates are low, if you go to the bank and, and you've been on JobKeeper, they're unlikely to give you a loan. They'll tell you to come back. But if you work in a secure industry, um, then the banks, because they have to lend money to survive, they're going to lend more. So what's happening at the moment is that the middle part of the market the well-established suburbs are actually going up in price because banks are willing to to lend there and people are happy to upgrade. But the top and bottom ends of the markets are, are you know, that's where the banks are not so willing to lend because they see them more at risk. So that's how finance plays an important part. Okay, interesting. I've got a lot of questions, John. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. It's firing that. How do you know, like in a situation where, in a situation like Canberra where you mentioned, you know, like young professionals are moving into rent and old people are moving out to Batemans Bay and Gold Coast to retire, how do you know? Like, how, do you, how do you know whether they're old or young? How do you know where they want to go? Like how do, you, how do you, without going door knocking and saying, hey, are you moving? How old are you and where are you going? How do you understand that? How, do you, how can you, because understanding the types of people that are moving to different locations. For example, if you knew that just broadly there was 22,000 
people moving out of Canberra and they were all over 60 and they were all moving to Batemans Bay, you might be like, great, I'm going to go and invest in like, I don't know, a retirement village in Batemans Bay. I don't know, right? But mm. you could use that as a kind of trend. How can you work that out? How can you use that to your advantage as an investor? Uh, well, how do you work it out? Um, probably th there are three ways. And again, the first way, and this is largely my experience at the ABS, uh, working there for five years, uh, we have a number of products developed that, that give you the answers to those questions. And one mm. of those is called QuickStats. Uh, you can go into QuickStats and very quickly look up the changing demographics of any area. And you can do this at a, even a, a size of Canberra or right down to a suburb level. So it's telling you, are younger people coming in or out? Are the number of renters increasing or decreasing? So that's the first thing I look at. Um, the second thing I then look at, again, sort of cascading down a bit, is to look at, well, where is the demand going at the moment for properties? And I see rent demand rising, so obviously young people moving in. Uh, and then I see the demand for big old family homes decreasing. So that's an easy one. Our database tells us that. And then the third one is to do on the ground research. You go and have a look and uh, ask real estate agents and buyers agents what's actually happening on the ground and that will confirm or, or refute what your other findings have uh, told you. Yeah, cool. I like that. Yeah, I, I'm a strong believer in, you know, data will only tell you one side of the story. You have to understand it from a human level as well. Mm -hmm. And you only yeah. get that from the coalface. Yeah. So, no, that makes, okay, that makes sense. So, I was going to ask you, like one of the things I wanted to ask you is what are the top five indicators you look to define growth? Now, I know we've kind of talked about like, um, you know, supply and demand and rents going up and all of that kind of stuff. But are there any kind of key, like aside from that kind of statistical information, are there key things that you look for? Is it like, uh, I don't know, there's infrastructure going in or is it lifestyle? What are the kind of growth drivers that you look for personally or, or have we sort of covered them? Do you only look at that, that stuff already? Uh, well, they're the main ones that I look at when I'm looking at the data. Mm. Uh, but there is another one, a very important one, and that is infrastructure. And it's the, the key to that is the type of infrastructure because it's got to be the type of infrastructure that's going to increase housing demand in an area. To give you an example of that, um, the Pacific Highway duplication, which occurred over the last few years and is nearly complete, they're just doing the bypass around Coffs Harbour now, um, what that did was it, it was a duplication of a thousand kilometres of highway all the way from Newcastle to the Queensland border. And as that progressed, of course, the workers, the construction workers rented in proper in areas like Kempsey and Taree and Port Macquarie and Warhope, all the way up to Ballina. Not a, not, so, a, not, a bad, not a bad work trip, by the way, to work the way up that coast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you could follow the, the rent demand and, uh, you know, the, the rents are almost doubled in some areas, but which is then leads to investors moving in and prices go up. But that's not a permanent change. What the permanent change was, was that once the highway was completed, people moved into those areas because they were easy to get to, they were safer to travel to, you know. So what it meant was that a lot of retirees started moving to places like um, Tari, Kempsey, Port Macquarie and all the way up to, to Ballina um, and prices went up dramatically by 20 30%. And you could follow this as the highway progressed north, you could see the prices going up. And I wrote a number of articles about this and uh, when I wrote for various magazines and predicted which one would be next and I was pretty 
close to the mark. It, and you can do that now um, with, say, the Bruce Highway expansion in Queensland. Mm. As that moves north, you can see areas like Gympie starting to boom. Uh, East Gippsland in Victoria, the East Gippsland Highways being um, upgraded and duplicated. And you can see the results in places like Painesville and, and Bairnsdale and eventually it'll be Lakes Entrance. Mm. So that's not rocket science, but you've got to apply the other levels of research because even though this infrastructure occurs, there could already be a surplus of properties or the demand mightn't be that much. So you've got to do the whole lot to so, get the right answer. Uh, is some is some infrastructure better than other others, or is all infrastructure created equal in context? Now, for example, a road. You know, you can say, yeah, people can get there and get away, and you know, better connectivity. Uh, rail. You would assume the same thing. What about, uh, you know, what about what about non-transport infrastructure? What about you know, public and private infrastructure, factory? Like, is there any other kind of stuff that that, or is it all the same? It, it's no, it's not the same at all, Gus. Uh, it's very different, and. We also, infrastructure, even if it's transport infrastructure, if it's in a well-established area, it doesn't really change the, the nature of the property market. Uh, I did a study on the light rail expansion uh, that went out from the city out to, um, through Leichhardt and then further, further along that, uh, that light rail. Very popular, but it didn't have any impact on property prices because they were, people already living there was meeting existing demand. Fascinating. But then again, in Mernda, in Victoria, which is an outer suburban area, they built a new extension of the railway line out to Mernda and property prices boomed once the railway was, station was finished because it actually led to more people wanting to live there. So, you know, it depends on the area, the nature of infrastructure. And if it's, um, I always say if it's a hospital or a university, it'll lead to more, you know, people going to hospital there or more students, but it won't actually change the housing market. What do you think is going to happen with education? Just as a side note, non-property specific, what do you think is going to happen with education uh, given given currently, you know, there's a, like the lack of foreign students and all of that kind of stuff. Do you think that universities themselves are going to decentralise and move more online, in which case, as a business model, they will be able to expand their presence a lot more. They can do courses for anyone all around the world. But do you think that? Do you think that's going to happen? Have you ever thought about that? Do you think that's going to happen? And do you think that that would then really change that whole, like, universities are a good leader of growth? Uh, well, there's a number of universities that have, have tried that uh, version of online or remote or virtual learning. Uh, like the University of New England and um, James Cook University up in, in the north of Queensland. So, you know, there's a number that have done it and they still have to have a reliance on people coming in for certain projects of work and so on. And some people just simply prefer the, you know, the physical um, component of actually attending a university. So I think it's going to be something that uh, the pandemic has hastened but I and I still think once the pandemic's over, that a lot of international students will come to Australia, not just because um, of the learning experience, but also because of the actual experience of, of living in Australia. A lot of them just like like doing that and then getting jobs while they're here and, and so on. Okay, makes sense. Let's talk about where where the markets uh, where the markets going. There's a few because obviously that I mean like you know right now. 
you know, we moved from the start of the year to now, things are obviously dramatically different. Everyone's heard all unprecedented times and COVID and all this stuff's been going on, but there's like a whole bunch of different existential uh, crises going on. There's, um, you know, there's the breakdown in relationships with China, which could affect a huge amount of migration or, or stuff coming from, from China. There's obviously, um, you know, uh, dollar value differentiations, net migration, state border, lo- state border lockdowns, all of that kind of stuff. Where do you see the market more broadly going over the next 12 months? What, while the um, lockdowns and, and interstate border closures continue, mm. uh, I think you'll find that it's that middle part of the market that will continue to, to go up in value because more banks you know, will lend more money into that part of the market. Can you just define the middle part of the market from your perspective? That's they're well-established suburbs in in the bigger cities, and they are the areas where over the median values. So you know, say in Sydney, maybe around a million dollars. In Melbourne, seven eight hundred thousand. That that area of the market is pretty much immune to anything that's going on right now. However, when you look at the inner urban unit market, it's completely collapsed. The demand there has collapsed and we're seeing huge numbers of rental vacancies, over 4,000 vacant units uh, in in Melbourne. That's in the CBD area. These are mainly investors that bought properties thinking they could Airbnb them or do short-term lettings, you know, that sort of thing. And it's just all come to pieces because there's no people coming into Australia for, you know, short-term visits, students or or, uh, tourists. Totally. I, I want to challenge you on a point you said there. Basically, million dollars, seven hundred thousand. That's a like a very stable section of the market. I, I would argue, I would argue that given unemployment and given rental prices and all of that kind of, given everything that's going on, I would argue that that is just outside the the level of of comfortable affordability for a lot of people. And that was would be where we'd be seeing more rental stress would be in those kind of properties and more mortgage stress in those kind of properties. What do you what do you think to that degree? Well, most of those properties are owned by people, not not rented, uh, and a lot of them, it's their second or third home that they've bought. So it's it's the family home, and these areas always tend to exhibit long term stability. And the reason for that is that people live in them a long time, and they don't sell them because they have to. They sell them because they you know want to move to a better area or or downsize. Uh, the other thing about those markets is that the, because they've built up equity, the actual requirement for finance is lower. So when you, you go to the bank, as a you know, say you've owned your second home and you're living in a, in a well-established area, and you might be after a 50% LVR, that's a loan to value, uh, the banks will look at that much more favourably. Your income is quite high, you've got good job security. So banks are just simply lending more to people who meet those criteria. I'm not saying all people will be uh, equally treated, but certainly uh, a lot more of them are looked at favourably. Okay, so moving forward a little bit from the from the now, like where do you see, um, where, like what states, what areas? You don't have to give away your 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 secrets. You don't have to tell me what's the next hotspot, John. Although you can <laughs> absolutely, um, but where, like more broadly, what states and what um, what areas do you see performing best over the next twelve months? I think the, the the main dynamic we've got to look at is when the borders reopen. I mentioned 800,000 people, you know, moving each year in Australia in or out of states, and that 
that um, trend has mainly been away from the western states. So people have been leaving Perth and Adelaide. Right now they can't do that. So when you, you look at, say, Perth and you see that rents have actually increased, a large reason for that is because these younger people can't get away. They're sort of stuck there mm. and most of them are renters. So these people hold the key to rent demand in the eastern states and where they go will increase the demand for rental properties dramatically. And I think a lot of them will go to Queensland, uh, southeast Queensland and Brisbane in particular. So I think that uh, Brisbane has definitely got a, a lot of... Um, rent growth potential. Some of them will go to Sydney, but it's a bit uh, a bit dear for them. And some will go to Melbourne, but I don't think it'll be as many as have gone there in the past because I think Melbourne's got a bit of a, a post-pandemic stigma. Uh, people will probably want to avoid it for some time. So I think Melbourne's in for a bit of a, um, a longer recovery period. As for older people, you know, we all see a lot of people retiring and moving into state as well. I think that that move will also uh, start up again and you'll find that areas like Tasmania, the East Coast, will benefit from that, as will northern New South Wales and, and southeast Queensland, in particular the Sunshine Coast. So it's got you know, very low rental vacancies and uh, a lot of growth potential. So you don't see the Adelaide and the Perth market doing well over the next 12 months? I think they've been largely insulated from the, the issues that we've had with the pandemic. And the reason for that is they don't have a lot of overseas migration. Um, only about 3% of the population move every year. So, you know, they've been pretty much insulated from this. Mm -hmm. And I think if anything, uh, they won't benefit once the borders are open because more people will probably move east. Uh, I'm not saying the markets will crash. I just don't think they'll perform as well as some of those I've mentioned on the eastern side. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Because when I look at the Perth market myself, I mean, I see a lot of really strong I, – I note your point about the fact that maybe people just can't get out of there and that's why <laughs> vacancy rates are down and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, to that degree, there seems to be a lot of uh, public and private infrastructure spending, jobs growth, lithium factories, you know, resources are going stronger again, um, you know, the, the metro net rail link, all that kind of stuff in Perth. And also it's coming off a very low base. Now, I'm not he here to try and say Perth, the truth, the right in the way, but to me, that's a market that says to me, everything I see right there right now says to me that it's it's swooping off the bottom and it's on its way back up again. I, well, the, Perth is a, a very unique market. Uh, it, it, Perth is the most isolated, you know, capital city in the whole world, mm. pretty much. It's further away from any other capital city than any other. Um, so it has to do a lot of everything itself. All the, the, all the manufacturing, everything has to be completely independent. You can buy local brands of almost anything there. So it's got that stability. And I think that it's also got um, a lot of the the sort of nature of a mining boom town. It, it has that boom and bust mentality about it. And it's gone through a bit of a boom. That's over. I think now it'll return to, you know, the way that most markets perform over time. I do agree it's hit the bottom and it's it's going to come back. But I don't think it'll it'll boom in the way that areas where more people are moving to will. Interesting. Interesting insights. Okay. What's your preferred, which you sort of touched on uh, yields and stuff earlier, you know, buying, buying, getting in markets, we can get the growth in the yield and all of that kind of stuff. What is your, what is your preferred property investment strategy? 
Um, well, I've, I've had a lot of different uh, goes at property investment strategies in the past, uh, but I, I think I've summed it up in, in um, my, my strategy, which is when you start off as a property investor, young, like I was at 20, the idea is to borrow as much as you can and leverage for growth because cash flow won't do anything for you if you buy, you know, a $100,000 house in hay. Uh, you're not going to, you know, get anywhere on that. But if it doubles in price, then you will. So the idea is to use leveraging to your advantage. What that means is if it's costing you 3% to borrow money and you're getting 10% growth, then you're making 7% on the bank's money. That's good debt. So that's at the start. Then as you progress through your uh, investment journey, as you amass more and more equity and more and more wealth, then you start to look at cash flow as being far more important than growth. So at, at my stage of my journey, uh, you know, I'm pretty close to the, the end of the journey. I'm, I'm sort of quite happy with what I've achieved. But what our properties are all high cash flow generating properties. The reason for that is we want the income right now and we don't want to leave the growth to our kids or grandkids. You know, we're very uh, <laughs> greedy people. So they'll get enough. And um, it's all about cash flow at the end. So that's that's how I see uh, my strategy now is very much cash flow oriented. Uh, when I was young, it was all about getting as much growth. And, and part of that too is active investment, you know, getting in there and, and re-renovating and, and doing stuff to improve the value of assets. So I think what you call the holy trinity um, is what it's all about, especially when you're younger. Yeah, totally. Well, thanks, thanks for validating. <laughs> thanks for validating that. I really appreciate it because I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think, you know, in the early phase, the way, my perspective on that is you absolutely need to go for growth in the early phase. You absolutely must. But I believe that it needs to be cash flow positive so that you don't hit your debt ceiling and get stuck. And that's kind of the, the fundamental basis in the start. And I agree that then you get more complex, do more value adding type stuff generate more capital and transfer that into cash flow assets later on that have less capital. Um, so I, I fundamentally agree with that. So it's great to hear. Um, one, one last question. What do you want to be remembered for? Well, um, lots of things I, I hope and I hope they're all good. But I think the, in, in regard to the property market, um, I wrote my first book. It was called Mastering the Australian Housing Market, published by Wiley's. It, it was a landmark bestseller for property investors. Uh, it still sells quite well. And the reason I wrote that book is because I wanted to share my knowledge of the property market, how it worked and how you could avoid making mistakes. Because property investing for many people involves the single biggest financial commitment they'll ever make in their lives. And if they get it wrong, it can set them back for you know many, many years. So I'd like to be remembered as the person who showed people how to get it right, how to make good, secure investments that will return good profits and avoid making mistakes easy and if people that's that sounds this is a very good thing to be remembered for i mean the whole reason that i'm even in the in the business that i'm in is because i want to help people to do to do more and to do better um i don't have some intrinsic underlying like i want to be a real estate guy i'm like people i want to help them achieve greater levels of fulfillment that's what it's all about to me so okay where can people find out a little bit more? I mean, I, I like the Linderman reports. I think they're a good read and I like the methodology and all of that kind of stuff. So where can other people go to find out more? Where can they get your books? Where can they reach out to you? How can they connect and get more John Linderman? 
If, if uh, people would like more of me, it's very easy. Uh, we've got a website called lindemanreports.com.au. So if you look up Lindemann Reports, Google that, you'll find our site. Uh, we offer a lot of services. We have um, free consultations. We have uh, blogs and so on. Um, and of course, reports that you can buy if, if you um, if you're at certain stages in your property investment journey for growth or cash flow. But go to the the website Lindemann Reports to to get lots of free information. Fantastic. Well, John, thanks so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. I reckon we might have to get you back on again periodically because I've really enjoyed your uh, insights. I think there's a lot of value. Uh, to be extracted, not to sound too, you know, not to sound too aggressive, but to extract some of that knowledge and to really start giving it to to our audience. I think it's super valuable. So, you know, on behalf of everyone listening, I just want to say thanks. Appreciate it. That's been a pleasure, Goose, and I'll be happy to come back uh, anytime that uh, in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much.